Hi, Doug McLennan here, and you're listening to another episode of Arts Journal's The Undertow, our more or less weekly look at the trends and ideas driving our culture. This week, some early signs of what the cultural landscape might look like post-COVID lockdown. We'll look at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and what its reinvention might say about the post-lockdown world. And we'll explore what these rather significant changes say about audiences and artists and the culture. But first, I'm interested in your thoughts on today's topic and anything else we cover on The Undertow. If you want to weigh in, head over to Arts Journal and click on the Diacritical blog to comment. Or you can email me at theundertow at artsjournal.com. And if you want to be alerted when we publish a new episode of The Undertow, subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Back in a moment. Last week, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the world's largest festival, a rowdy, messy, raucous celebration of performance that takes over the historic center of the city of Edinburgh every August, announced a series of reforms that should transform Scotland's iconic cultural event by, quote, managing the scale of the festival in years to come. Now, I love the French, its free-spirited bedlam and desire to squeeze itself into every space imaginable is fantastic. I like stumbling upon things I didn't know were a thing. I love being surprised and confronted with things that take me outside myself. And I also like being able to escape whenever I get bored, which is generally easy to do in this format. The Fringe is a smorgasbord of exotic meats and vegetables you can graze on at your own pace. The crowds are amazing. The performers are often astounding, inhabiting worlds and practicing crafts that can be foreign and exotic. And what to say about Edinburgh itself, obviously one of the world's most beautiful cities. Almost every year, productions and artists at the Fringe get discovered and picked up to go on to a life elsewhere. The Fringe is an alchemy of people, place, moments that change the way you think. No wonder it's popular. It was actually started in 1947 as counter-programming to the official Edinburgh International Festival, which itself was started as a response to the end of World War II. Fun fact, many of the world's most iconic and successful arts festivals were founded after some big civic or national or even worldwide crisis or challenge that exhausted its citizens. The Salzburg Festival was created two years after World War I, and more recently, Toronto's Luminato Festival was started in 2007, after the SARS virus outbreak shut down Toronto for a summer. And that, of course, makes one wonder what might emerge in the couple of years after COVID. Anyway, back to the Edinburgh Festival. For many years, as the fringe got ever bigger, performers increasingly complained about working conditions, pay, and exposure and equity of venues. Attendees complained about overcrowding and the increased inability to get into things they wanted to see. And the millions of visitors took an increasing toll on the ability of the city to function each August. In 2019, the Edinburgh Fringe, in a city of just over 500,000 people, 
sold more than 3 million tickets for almost 4,000 shows at more than 300 venues, an increase of 31% in just five years. In short, the Fringe had become too much of a good thing. And with it, an experience widely touted as one of the best festivals in the world had gotten so big, it had gotten worse for performers, for visitors, and definitely for Edinburghers who still lived there. Still, it seemed, at least from the outside, that fringe organizers were reluctant to take the steps necessary to address the issues. COVID changed that. Stepping back from the annual grind convinced organizers that a pause was an opportunity to make change, not just to mitigate the crowds, which are, it has to be said, one of the attractions of gathering in Edinburgh, but new rules to make the experience more workable and rewarding for everyone. Reforms include new rules for presenters, paying living wages to employees, becoming carbon neutral, and a pledge to, quote, eradicate exploitive, unsafe, and unfair working practices. So you can look at this story as a big event examining itself in a mirror and deciding to address its problems. But I think there's perhaps something bigger here that responds to a couple of trends that are increasingly going to drive the broader culture. The first is that our traditional system for measuring success has generally been bigger is better. Not just better, but tangible proof that it is better. Culture is a squishy, intangible thing that is hard to measure objectively. How do you measure how much someone is affected by something they've seen or experienced? But bigger is better is easy. If so many people want to buy what you're selling, then it must be good. That idea is what our capitalist system is built on. And in live performance, Edinburgh has been the gold standard. In fact, no other event in the world sells so many tickets other than the World Cup or the Olympics. For Edinburgh to recognize that its size has now maybe become a liability is a paradigm-shifting notion. The second idea is that those running the Edinburgh Fringe have taken the COVID time out to look around and see that we're now living in a different era. The world looks significantly different than it did in 2019. And this was the impetus to use the pause as an opportunity to grab a hold of some long-term trends address some of the issues that have been festering at the festival for years, try to match the post-COVID values and recognize new opportunities. That Edinburgh realizes that the world has changed significantly and that the festival needed to change itself is a bold move. So let's talk about these things one at a time. First, the bigger is better model has always been an awkward fit for culture. In the capitalist model, the measure of success is easy. The more you sell, the more money you make, the bigger you get, and the more successful you are. Growth equals success. In business, if you stop growing, even if you're Microsoft or Boeing, you get punished for it. And it isn't about the quality of the product. Cheap and disposable often beats high quality and durability. Success depends on matching market expectations with demand, so growth is almost always rewarded, while quality might not be. That isn't, by the way, a criticism. The balance between quality and sales is a fascinating dance around how consumers define and reward value. 
In culture, the determination of value is much messier. It's important for Edinburgh to be big and messy and crowded because that's part of its essential energy. Performers feed off it and they want to be there. Crowds also like to feel like they're part of something big and that they're a significant part of the experience. But as the crowds return from being locked up for two years, many of the world's most popular attractions are realizing that their popularity might have been choking them. Venice is being damaged by the throngs, so much so that it banned cruise ships and an instituted visitor charge that every visitor to the city now has to pay. Machu Picchu, Angkor Wat, and the Louvre, Vatican, and Uffizi museums are now so swarmed with tourists that it has become almost impossible to appreciate the art inside, definitely degraded experiences. Last summer, a record nearly 5 million tourists trekked to Yellowstone Park, an increase of 18% from the previous record, making it difficult to protect the wilderness the millions had come to see. And we're starting to see some of the world's biggest festivals begin to think about that issue of their size and impact. The shine has gone off the once iconic Coachella and Burning Man festivals as their size and scale begins to diminish the experience. For a lot of these places and events I've mentioned, attempts to limit or control access to them will change them, institutionalizing access to them. That means that instead of just showing up and discovering on your own, being serendipitous, you have to plan ahead and anticipate. And that necessarily changes the experience and also the kinds of people who will come. Not always for the worse, but it will be different. On top of this, there's another long-term trend that may be at work here. A curious thing has happened to the bigger is better model in culture in recent years. The internet decoupled the bigger part from the financial better rewards that had been tied to it. That is, while selling more albums or books used to make you richer in the previous era, that's no longer the case when streaming your music or whatever you rack up millions of views, but it pays you next to nothing for it. In short, we've begun to detach from the default mass market model. Instead, it's more important to find the right fans to match the product. As the economics of creating culture have become disrupted, the old economics of cultural production often no longer make sense, and new models reward in different ways. And that's the rub. It's actually not that social media doesn't reward creators. It's that it rewards different creators for creating different things. And often what they create bears little resemblance to traditional work that used to be well compensated. All of which is to say that the equation Edinburgh and its artists have to figure out in deciding what's worth presenting and where has changed. And everyone now might be calculating the risks of participating in Edinburgh, performances and audiences alike. And that brings me to the second big idea. What does Edinburgh's new vision for itself say about where it believes the world is now post-COVID? To back up a bit, 
By 2019, the world had gotten quite used to ever-accelerating change, and the digital revolution had been overturning long-established industries and institutions for 20 or more years. The dark side of the internet was already very apparent, and attacks on our political institutions also. But as destabilizing as all these seemed, they weren't existential threats in the way COVID has been. COVID was the first global threat since World War II that significantly affected virtually every one of us. The global pause knocked us out of our routines and habits, both from the things we loved as well as the things we didn't. And as the world opens up again, maybe many of us are making different choices, working more from home, traveling in different ways, even working at different jobs. COVID and our reaction to it made us all feel a little less secure, a bit uncertain about how the world is working. Add climate change, whose effects are being harder and harder to ignore, the war in Ukraine, which has destabilized the global political order, and any number of other growing threats, and this feels less and less like a no-consequences moment. We're revisiting our values with new eyes, which means that the old values are under new scrutiny, and Edinburgh's policies about workers and equity and what shows and what artists will be presented and the kinds of impacts the festival has and says it has, things like carbon footprint and well-being of workers, have to realign. However, I think it would be a mistake just to interpret this moment politically on climate change, on diversity, on equity, on protecting democracy. These are all worthy and worthwhile causes. But I think there's something deeper going on, and the politics are perhaps just a manifestation of that, but not the thing itself. What the that is, I think, is that people are, consciously or not, rethinking their relationships with the world around them and how they interact with it. It began when the internet turned every camera into a TV studio, and anyone online became a publisher of whatever content they wanted to make. That, in turn, allowed people to find one another around the things that they liked or discovered, no matter how trivial. And these likes and interests were affirmed and amplified by their communities, which resemble intense, almost hyper-local microcultures, but which can actually involve thousands or hundreds of thousands of members. If anything, the pandemic shutdown intensified this burrowing deeper into online cultures. So now that the world is reopening, more of us than ever want to insist that the real world around us align with those online values, or we won't participate. Hence the scramble to align politics. It has also made us perhaps more intentional about going out when we do. And I wonder if that might be something of an opportunity. One complaint about being online is how deadening and empty it can be if it takes over your life. Not enough that it makes us being online, of course, but you're probably familiar with the feeling, the endless doom scrolling through posts and stories and videos. It's cheap and highly addictive, especially since we can do it whenever there's a lull in real life. It's junk food that fills in the cracks. 
It's so easy to be distracted by something new every few seconds, but also it can be deeply unsatisfying. If you think about pre-internet distraction, while there was certainly plenty of choice, most of those choices required conscious effort. What you chose, you had to go out and get. It mostly didn't just present itself. You had to proactively seek out the things you wanted. Go buy a newspaper, find out what time that TV show was on so you didn't miss it, wait for the post office to deliver letters from friends. Each of these involved choices and effort, and they weren't infinite. Now, many of our choices involve little more than clicking on a screen, a teeny tiny poke of your thumb that can open up miraculous riches, or more usually not. When everything is easy to access, involving no effort, surely we lose some of our ability to calculate what's worth the investment of our time and what is not. Presented with an inexhaustible stream of distraction, the empty calories squeeze out the nutrients. But what's that I hear? The collective exhaustion of the endless online scroll? The popularity of unique big events, big concerts and festivals, immersive experience, and the astonishing ticket prices fans are willing to pay for them suggests that there's still enormous appetite for in-person events. It's just that they have to be very clear about what the unique value is. Edinburgh's problem isn't getting people to come. It's the opposite, and those who come have been willing till now to endure the annoyances of the overcrowded events that is forced on them. It may be, ironically, in fact, that one of the reasons the crowds want to be there is because of the investment of aggravation it takes to be there and to be transported out of everyday routine. But that only works so long as the crowds mostly still get access to what it is that they want. Thus, Edinburgh's investment in creating a better experience by perhaps being a little lesser in size. If that's true, it's more confirmation that experience trumps everything else. While everything may start and end with the art, it's the experience that will get people out of their screens more than ever. And I think that is the COVID lesson. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug McLennan, editor of artsjournal.com. You can write to me at theundertow at artsjournal.com. If you liked what you heard today, check out our episodes. This is episode five. You can hear the others and be notified when new episodes come out by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. The easiest way to find us is search for Arts Journal's The Undertow. Adding the Arts Journal is a way to filter out all the false undercurrents. Till next time.